Welcome to When the Stars Disappear, a podcast devoted to addressing some of life's deepest issues from a biblically informed Christian perspective. Our guide as we address these issues is Mark Talbot, a professor of philosophy at Wheaton College. Mark suffered a paralyzing accident when he was 17 and now is writing a four-volume series on suffering in the Christian life. The first volume, When the Stars Disappear, Help and Hope from Stories of Suffering in Scripture, is available now from Crossway and wherever books are sold. The second volume, Give Me Understanding That I May Live, Situating Our Suffering Within God's Redemptive Plan, will be available in July. Today, Mark is being interviewed by Paul Winters, a former pastor and now partner at the law firm of Wagonmaker and Oberly in downtown Chicago. Let's listen in as Paul asks Mark to explain why his second volume begins by talking about Adam and Eve, the first human beings. Well, Mark, it's great to be with you today. Thanks for taking the time to engage in some important discussion. I want to begin by asking you a question regarding Adam. Your book talks about the creation of Adam, the first human being, and I'm wondering why is considering Adam important to your project? It's good to be with you, Paul. Adam was the first human being, and why God created him as well as what Adam did, has affected us all. What we find is that the first chapter of Genesis tells us how God prepared the world for our first parents. And so it orients us to the world we actually live in. Genesis' second chapter gives a more detailed account of God's creation of both Adam and Eve. And then its third chapter shows us that they, and not God, are to blame for human suffering. So understanding these chapters in particular is crucial for our understanding facts that otherwise we are almost bound to misinterpret. All right, that's helpful. I'm wondering if you could dig a little bit deeper on that last comment. What sorts of facts are we, I guess, likely to misunderstand if we don't understand the earliest chapters in Genesis? Could you give us an example? I can give you an example, Paul. The fact that animal life involves a hierarchy that includes more and more human-like creatures, in other words, a hierarchy that progresses up through monkeys and apes and involves especially chimpanzees, seems to support Darwin's idea that we come from the apes. But the first chapter of Genesis emphasizes how God created everything, including those animals, to show that we are creation's crown. And consequently, he made the animals converge toward humanity. In other words, he had us in mind as he created the other creatures. He made the higher ones more and more like us without making us from them. Verse 27 of Genesis chapter 1 is meant to show that we were specially created by God to crown the creative process. So what I hear you saying, Mark, is that despite first appearances, what Genesis has in mind is actually very different from what Darwin had in mind. That Genesis is not supporting the idea that human beings have evolved from the higher primates. 
Um, if that's right, why do you say that? That's right. The reason I say it is because of the way that the text uses the Hebrew word bara in Genesis 1 on through Genesis 2, verse 3. The Old Testament reserves the word bara for God's creative activity. Only God creates. Jack Collins says that Genesis 1 and 2 uses bara when it wants especially to stress that what God is producing involves some kind of fresh start. Barah appears seven times in that stretch of the text. Once in the Bible's first verse, in the beginning God created Barah, in other words, the heavens and the earth. Once at 1 verse 21, so God created Barah, the great creatures of the sea, and every living thing with which the water teems and then moves about in it, according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. Once at 2, verse 3, then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating, Barah, that he had done. And once in 2, 4, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, Barah, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And then here's, here's the crucial point. Barah appears three times in verse 27 of chapter 1 when God created our first parents. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So you're saying that God created mankind in his own image is written, he barahed them. In the image of God, he barad them, male and female, he barad them, and it's all in the same verse. Yes. The reiteration of barah in verse 27 is stressing that God is producing something new, something that is a fresh start. What those three occurrences of barah add to everything else that we get in the first two chapters of Genesis is that it is signaling that not only the creation itself was something only God could do, but also that the appearance of animate life in 121 is something that only he could do and a kind of fresh start. In that sense, animate life, animals, aren't to be completely explained naturalistically. Their appearing involves God giving life and breath to all of the earth's moving creatures. And then if we believe, as Gerhard von Rod put it, nothing in the Genesis account of creation is here by chance. Everything must be considered carefully, deliberately, and precisely that what is said in the Genesis account is intended to hold true entirely and exactly as it stands then the fact that Barah appears three times in 127 in reporting our creation signals just how momentous, how special, how deliberate our creation was. Our first parents were the crown of creation, the purpose for which God did all of his creating and making throughout Genesis' first chapter. Yeah, you know, this uh, reminds me of listening to a really well done symphony where 
it sounds like you're saying these themes, and in that case, the melodic themes pop up again and again throughout the symphonic work. And then there's a kind of culmination at the pinnacle or the crescendo of the piece. It seems like what you're saying, Mark, is that God's creation of Adam and Eve in 127 of Genesis is the crescendo of the sort of symphonic work that God is weaving, as it were, throughout the first chapter of Genesis. So uh, I guess my question related to that is, if I'm right, if that's an accurate analogy, what is it that's so important about Adam and Eve's creation? In other words, why all the fuss here? Why is there something like a literary crescendo? And really, what do I and all the rest of our listeners need to learn from this that would be crucial for our living the kinds of lives that God wants us to live right now? You're right, Paul. I think there's a kind of symphonic buildup here that peaks when God creates Adam and Eve and then pronounces that what he has created is not merely good, as he had pronounced after completing various earlier parts of creation, but now with their creation, it's very good. But if we want to know what is so important about Adam and Eve's creation, it's all tied up with verse 27's claim that God created us in his own image. That, in fact, is so important a point that the verse repeats it quite twice. It says, first, so God created mankind in his own image, and then it says, in the image of God, he created them. The verses that flank verse 27 tell us why God made us in his image. Before God created us, he said in verse 26, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. And here are the two really important words. So that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. God made us in his image so that we can rule over the animals. Verse 28 then adds, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. What it comes to is that God created us as his images. In other words, we were to be his visible representatives all over the earth, everywhere. That's the be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth idea. God created us in his image to fulfill a specific task. He meant for us to care for all the rest of creation with the same sort of loving care that he himself has for it. Thanks for that, Mark. I find that very helpful. We hear this image of God phrase, and we hear it being batted about in different ways as meaning many different things. But this idea of the image of God, if I'm hearing you correctly, mainly has to do with this crescendo in the text that you're talking about and the task that God 
immediately calls Adam and Eve into so that by image of God, God is referring mainly to our role as his representatives on earth. And that's what it means to be made in his image. Is that a fair statement? That's right. In fact, I fill that idea in in my book, Paul, by explaining that this idea of setting up images around one's kingdom was common in Old Testament times. So a ruler would perhaps have a statue of himself 600 miles from where his throne was to remind his people that he was their ruler. And I point out that there's really pretty good reason to translate the Hebrew phrase that we usually render as in his image as as his image. I see. You're outlining from the text a very specific way here that we are to understand the imago dei, which, as I mentioned, people understand in, in a wide variety of ways. People have given different explanations of what the image of God means, what it entails. For example, in addition to what you said about it, meaning for us to be God's primary representatives here in this text, people have also said things like it means that we of all God's creatures are the ones who were you know, made specifically to relate to him, to be in a relationship with him. So could you respond to that and maybe help us understand how this idea that, as you're saying, we are meant to be God's earthly representatives intersects with other ideas like that one. And why this idea that you're articulating that we are meant to be God's earthly representatives is really important for understanding our purpose here. I think that's a really important point for us to clarify, Paul. As we'll see when we move forward to discuss the second chapter of Genesis, in making us in his image, God was making us responsible persons. And in order for us to be able to relate to him, we need to be responsible persons. So it's not as if this idea that we are made in his image so that we can relate to him is wrong. It's just not the basic function of our being made in his image that's given in the first chapter of Genesis. Sometimes people find themselves thinking, well, wait a minute, we're made in the image of God. Does that mean that we look like him? But of course, the Old Testament idea of God is that God has no visible image. And so in my book, I end up quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 9 through 14, where it's quite clear that we are supposed to image God by listening to him and by doing what he commands us to do. Verses 12 and 13 of that chapter in Deuteronomy Note that when the Lord spoke to the Israelites out of the midst of the fire on the mountain, that, as Moses says, you heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. And then Moses goes on and he says, and he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform. That is the Ten Commandments. So the image, we could say, is more audible than visual. 
Wow, that's uh, very eye-opening, and um, if I may, very ear-opening. Uh, <laughs> it uh, opens up a lot of ideas um, in my thinking here, perhaps about why the Word of God is so important if being made in His image necessarily entails listening to Him. I mean, then... If that's the case, then you begin to see the impact of God's word in all of that and how when many times we close our ears to his word, we're actually, would you say, diminishing the purpose for which we are made? We are, are we actually diminishing the image of God? I would want to say, Paul, that we are actually diminishing our personhood because as, in fact, I'll argue in my third volume, persons are actually constituted by the specific language they learn and speak. That's difficult to understand. I'll explain it then. But if that's true, that persons are actually constituted by the specific language they learn and speak, then in order for us to be what God wants us to be as persons, we must be constituted by hearing him speak to us, by our listening and obeying him. And if we don't, we're not going to be what persons are meant to be. In that sense, the way that I put it is that scripture is supposed to become our primary language. Yeah, fantastic. That's great, really great stuff. So. Thanks again, Mark, for letting us go off on that excursus for a minute. I think that based on what we've been talking about, we begin to have a, a pretty clear idea then of what it is that God made us for in this idea of the Imago Dei. Before we move on from chapter one, though, is there anything else that you think it's worth us spending time to glean or harvest from that chapter? I'd suggest just one more thing. The chapter structure tells us some important things about the world God created. In its second verse, we're told that the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The fact that God's Spirit was hovering over the waters suggests that God was about to do something to transform the earth and much of the remainder of Genesis chapter 1 chronicles how God gave the world a specific form that filled its emptiness. And so what we find, Paul, is that many of God's creative acts in Genesis 1 involve his either separating or differentiating between various things. For instance, after he said, let there be light, he separated the light from the darkness, calling the light day and the darkness night, and thus created the first day. And then with regard to the second day, he separated the atmospheric waters from the surface waters, the clouds from the seas, in other words. And on the third day, he separated the land from the seas. Now, God then began filling some of these separated spaces on the third day. He commanded the earth to produce all sorts of plants, to cover the land, and he differentiated between the various plants and trees he created from each other by means of their seeds. On the fourth day, we're told, 
He filled the heavenly expanse with lights to give light upon the earth and to separate the day from the night. Now on the fifth and the sixth day, God filled the waters, the skies, and the land with living creatures, each according to their kinds. Why do you think, Paul, that Genesis chapter 1 has so much to say about God's creative processes involving separations and distinctions like these? Yeah. Well, the first thing I want to say is that when you explain it the way that you have, it really becomes devotional to really sort of think about the beauty of God's creation. I mean, we don't stop and think about it this way in that these differentiations that you're talking about, these separations that you're talking about are right there before us all the time. And they should. That's great, Paul. That's great. I I hadn't thought of that, but that uh, every time we see the sunrise, we should think of what God did. Yeah, I think that's right. And and you start to see the detail in the created order. And you think about some of the sort of the the debates that go on, sort of how did the earth come to be and some of the naturalistic debates. But what's going on here just strikes me as worshipful. It invites you to more than simply a consideration of how did this stuff come to be or how did these things come to be, but the very great care that God has put into this creation that we're really supposed to set up and take notice because it appears from what you're saying, Mark, that ultimately all of this is for our benefit. I mean, it really seems as you start to unpack some of this stuff in Genesis that you're that you're saying that God was really preparing a, a place that would show us him, well, at least his glory and sort of the magnitude of the kind of being he is and just very specifically preparing a place for us. I think that's exactly right. And I think that the other thing we could add is the uh, material we find at the beginning of uh, the paragraph in Romans 1, 18 through 23, uh, which tells us that the world uh, shows forth the glory of God, his power and his nature. And so it seems to me all of that comes together. One passage that deals with that is Isaiah, Isaiah 45, 18, where, in fact, it's declared that God formed the earth to be inhabited. So from the earth's formlessness in Genesis 1, verse 2, he was fashioning an ordered cosmos where we, as his images, could intelligently rule over the earth because we could understand, name, and classify things. As Jack Collins writes, Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3 informs us that the things we are familiar with work the ways they do because God intended them to work that way. There are edible plants and domesticatable animals. Every farmer knows this, and Genesis explains why. So what it comes to is that the wonderful, marvelous truth is that Genesis 1 records for us how God was making a home for us, a place where, as we'll see, we could be useful and do work that would satisfy us. Yeah, that's really, really good, Mark. And I want to just kind of say something back to you in response to that. First, it's interesting that this comes up in the context of a series of volumes on human suffering. And I just really appreciate the way that it orients us to the 
larger picture in a very important way because it brings to my mind the importance of things like the disciplines of observation in the natural order and just making sure we understand the importance of the sciences, not not, not even those of us who are professional scientists or, or not, those of us just lay people like myself to be able to understand that the details and the, the, the ways these, as I've heard you talk about it, causal realities, the way things sort of hold together, all of it in this created order has this very specific purpose. It's not in a vacuum. Um, it's, it's according to Genesis 1 and 2, by design, as, and as you say, in a way that would draw our attention to the creator, the one who's making all these, in a way that would, as you just said, satisfy us. If, if we remember that it isn't as if God has created the world and walked away from it and left certain natural laws in place, that because the world was created ex nihilo, in other words, out of nothing, that God has to hold it in existence moment by moment and has to keep this form in place, then we begin to realize that every time we see this form, we have evidence of God. Um, I, I, ha I had a friend say the other day to me, a scientist, in fact, that so far as he could understand in the history of science, you never had any great scientist who didn't see certain aspects of the natural world as beautiful. And I think that beauty, more than almost anything else, tends to lead us toward worship. Yeah, that, that's fa fabulous. Thanks for letting us riff on that a little bit, Mark. I appreciate it. I think there's one more thing that we'll see, Paul, and that is that as we move forward into Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve's rebellion against God's command not to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil has resulted in a kind of unmaking of the world that God had made. Um, we'll see how their disobedience resulted in the world losing some of the perfect form that God in creating it had given it. So sin, disobedience, attacks and undermines the form that God means our world to have, and thus robs us not merely of our sense that it has a form, it robs us of our sense that the world is a safe place for us. We become puzzled and fearful about what may happen to us, and ultimately, according to the gospel, it will only be our Lord's perfect obedience that will restore the perfect form that God gave to our world at the beginning when he makes a new heaven and a new earth for those who put their faith in our Lord's work. It really is interesting that we live in a place that has such manifest evidence of God's careful, deliberate, thoughtful separations, differentiating work that holds forth his glory. And as you've just said quite well, invites us to appreh apprehend the beauty in his creation, which points to his own beauty, and yet to live in a place at the exact same time, maybe paradoxically, I'll, I'll look forward to hearing you talk about this more in the future, where we can be in a place where we are in significant pain and puzzled and fearful under this, the, um, the effects of sin and disobedience of our first parents, right 
in the face of a beautiful sunset or right there on the shore of the Pacific or in the mountains surrounded by these kinds of things, Mark, this sort of paradoxical existence that we live in right now. That's right. That's right. Um, wow. and, and, and all of that comes out of Adam and Eve's disobedience and the fact that the world then started to make less sense. Well, thanks again, Mark. Uh, really important, very interesting things that we need to think deeply on. Um, we appreciate your opportunity, the opportunity to interact with you on this. And this is probably a pretty good place to stop the episode so we can do this kind of reflection that, that I was just saying and think a little bit internally about why Genesis 1 proceeds the way it does. Maybe each of us can go back and look at the text and spend some time in that chapter. So let's start there next time by having you help us see, Mark, why Genesis goes on to say that it was our first human parents and not God himself who are to blame for human suffering. Thanks, Paul. We see in Genesis 1 that human beings are the crown of God's creation. Adam was created by God as God's visible image in order to be seen as his representative in all the earth. We, like Adam, image God by listening to him and obeying his commands. And the world's order itself should remind us today of God's care and concern for us as his beloved creation. Mark's conversation partner for this episode has been Paul Winters. If you found this content helpful, let us know by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. We'd love to hear from you, and your review will also help others find these discussions as well. This is Lauren Susanto on behalf of Mark and Paul, thanking you for listening to When the Stars Disappear. Disappear.